I want to thank you all for praying for um, me this week. If you're on Facebook, you probably saw that my uncle um, Bobby had a, a heart attack, had three heart attacks uh, on Friday. And uh, so we've been, um, they, he was in Colorado Springs and then they transferred him up here to University Hospital and it's not looking good um, right now. So he's in his 50s and uh, so we're going to pray for him this morning. They just took him off the ventilator and heart pump this morning to see how his heart would respond and uh, he's just very agitated, um, not doing well and his heart is not strong right now. So if you guys could pray with me. Uh, I would appreciate that, and then we'll get into this in just a moment. Father, I, I just want to lift up uh, my uncle Bobby to you, and uh, Lord, I, I love him so much, and I just pray that you would uh, give him peace, help him to not be so agitated, give him understanding and calmness of heart, Lord. Uh, I pray that he would be, uh, in whatever moments of clarity he has right now, that he would be seeking you, and he would be um, knowing you and knowing you in truth. Uh, your grace for forgiveness in his life. And and uh, we pray that you would be with the doctors and nurses, that they would love him, and they would have uh, wisdom and skill in uh, in doing your will over there. So we pray for my family, uh, Lord, that we would all keep our eyes on you and, uh, and, and trust you through every circumstance. Uh, we pray for his heart, Lord, that it would grow stronger moment by moment. Uh, we do ask you um, to... Give him more time where he can get to know you and live for you in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Um, Hey, let's pray again because we have to pray for the Bible study. So how about that? Let's pray again. Father, please teach us through your word right now. Uh, Give us clear minds and, and tender, soft, moldable, and teachable hearts. Lord, we come in with no pride before you thinking that we know uh, anything. Lord, teach us even how to pray. Lord, you are the master and we are the students. And we pray that your word would teach us now. Amen. All right, so again this week I had two, two titles for the sermon because I can never make up my mind. Uh, so the first title I had was Epic Origin Story of Ear Piercing. Uh, who's got their ear pierced? All right, so you could, you could like get totally into that title if you want. Um, and, uh, but I had a better idea later, which is all you can handle. Uh, I like the all you can handle. That's my favorite one. So again, I'm going with the second one, uh, but we could vote who likes epic origin story of ear piercing and who likes all you can handle, man, I should come to you voting every week. This is fun. Vote for the title of this, the sermon. All right. Well, you, as you guys know, every, uh, good superhero movie, anyone seen a good superhero movie recently? Shout it out. What's the best one you've seen recently? Thor, Thor, Ragnarok was so funny. Anyone see Black Panther? It was good. Was it good? Okay, I need to see that one. All right. Everyone knows that a good superhero has a good origin story. You always, you want to know how they got, you know, bit by the spider. I don't, did he get bit by Black Panther? Is that how he came? I haven't seen it. He ate a flower? Wow, that's a hippie movie. I'd like to see that. Okay, well, everyone knows that they, the, the good ones have the best origin stories, and uh, Jesus, our superhero, has many great origin stories. Uh, we see them hundreds of, we call them foreshadows in the Old Testament, uh, things that, that speak of Jesus, although the people living in that time would have no clue why things were happening the way they were happening, why, you know, this rock was here, and this water was there, and this you know, tree was over here. But as we look back on these things, the Holy Spirit can show us in our hearts where Jesus was, was foreshadowed. It's such a cool thing that we have in the Old Testament is we can see um, how our superhero is foreshadowed. So wait till you get a load of this one. Uh, now let's begin in Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. Then he says, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Okay, so we're going to stop right there to just kind of reset. Uh, God has rescued his people from Egypt. Okay, he 
Before that, he promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a special people, my people, and I'm going, to, I'm going to love you and I'm going to care for you. And someday, Jesus is going to be born from one of your children. So he, he promises that. Then Abraham's kids go down and they become the nation of Israel and Egypt. God frees them from slavery. We've been studying this for like a year. I hope you know it. <laughs> Then he gets them to Mount Sinai as they're going through uh, the, the, the desert right there over in Saudi Arabia. And he gets them to Sinai and he gives them the law. The Ten Commandments is where we started with that. But when I say law, you can really divide it into three different parts. You have the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. Okay, And those, those govern the personal life of each and every person that were in the, the children of Israel, that were a part of that family, okay? It's their personal life. Then you have the civil law or the, the governmental law of how they would run their country, okay? And that's what we're going to study in the next couple chapters. Chapter 21, 22, and 23 are going to be the governmental laws. This governs the social life, how, how the government would run and all the people would interact with one another. Then we will get to the ceremonial law, which is the temple rules which governed the religious life of the people. So the personal life, the social life, and the religious life. And guess who is going to be the centerpiece of each one of these uh, laws and rules? Jesus. Okay, We're going to see Jesus so clearly through many, many, many of these laws. So today we're going to begin to look at the laws concerning the social lives of the people of Israel. Uh, this is how they were supposed to govern the nation. Now, now, do any of you live in Israel right now? Are you awake? Do any of you live in Israel right now? No, no we live in America, right? Land of the free, home of the brave. Give me a belt buckle and I'll be fine, right? We don't live in Israel, so we're not a part of that nation directly right now. And so these civil, these civil laws, these governmental laws, do not directly apply to us. We're not under these laws. But we're going to study them very directly and very clearly because there's beauty and wisdom and perfection in these laws. And if we were wise as a country, we would implement these into the government of our country as much as possible. But the greatest application that you and I see today in studying this chapter and the next three chapters is going to be in the spiritual level, in the spiritual analogies. In other words, we're going to be looking for Jesus in these laws, his heart, his life. And I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you see how, how clearly Jesus is foreshadowed in these laws. So we're going to primarily focus on that. The Holy Spirit is not a dummy. He planned these chapters out. He planned these very words. And as he planned these words, he, he, his heart was burning with passion for, with Jesus. He loves Jesus so much. And as he planned these scriptures out, he put little nuggets of, of Jesus' character and his work and his, his power and his grace in, he, he buried them. Okay, so we're going to be digging those out. You know, Jesus even said this. He said that some people studied the scriptures because in them they thought they had life. He says, but they don't realize that these scriptures, all the Old Testament, they were written about me. They were written about me. That's his direct words. He says that these laws were written about him. These books were all written about him. So we're going to place seek and find. We're going to go knock and the door will be opened and we're not going to be disappointed when we have our eyes on Jesus and we look at these scriptures. So let's, uh, let's get started with the first rule that we're going to look at. We're only going to get through one today because it is amazing. So it says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, okay? So this is going to be a law about servants. Some of your Things might say a slave, okay? We can call him a servant. We can call him a slave. We can call him, we could call this the law of the bond servant, um, a servant, okay? Right off the bat, is God saying that slavery is okay? No, no. okay? Let's, let's back up and let's talk about divorce, okay? Does God say divorce is okay? 
No, we know it's not okay, right? But he wrote laws concerning the governing of it. They came to Jesus and they said, well, Moses gave us rules for divorce. And Jesus like, because your hearts were hard. You already were doing it and you were going to do it no matter what. So God made it a little more tolerable. God helped you along. Remember, these people of Israel are children. They don't know how to be a people. They don't have any government. People were just doing whatever they wanted at this point in their history. They have been a nation for like five days. They don't have Abraham Lincoln to look up to or George Washington. They got nothing except Moses. And he's living right now and he makes all kinds of mistakes. So they got nothing. So he's going to start talking about slavery. Why? Because they practiced slavery. Now, what we're going to see as we study this is God put so many rules on slavery that it became a common saying back then that it was better to be a slave than to be a slave owner because they had more rights. In fact, this was one of the rules. Check this out. If you were a slave and you didn't want to be a slave, you could run away and nobody could force you to go back. That was a law in Israel. So if you didn't want to be a slave, don't be a slave. Nobody could make you go back. And if you did want to be a slave, you could only be a slave for six years and you had to get everything back in the seventh year. And not only that, you had to get paid for everything at the end of that seven year and he had to give you gifts out of his flocks and out of his grain. So it was really not a good idea to have slaves and God made it that way because as we understand his heart, you know, we live, we're sensitive to that issue because of our couple hundred years of history where, where our nation was involved with that. And then we, we just are sensitive to that, right? So right off the bat, does anyone now still think that God is okay with slavery? No, no not at all, okay? So, but he says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, now we're going to now lift our eyes to Jesus and we're going to see this Hebrew servant as a picture of Jesus. Y'all on board? All right, let's do it. Wait a minute. You can't call Jesus a servant, But this part of the law directly foreshadows Jesus. In fact, Jesus is commonly called a servant in the Old Testament. Let's look at some of these amazing verses about Jesus in the Old Testament. First, we have Zechariah 3.8. And I'm going to read you these verses. You can jot them down and take a look at them later. It says, Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. This is a prophecy about Jesus. One of his nicknames is the branch, which we learn more about why in in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. But he says here, God calls him his servant. Isaiah 42.1, Behold, my servant who I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. I mean, we could preach on that verse for weeks. Isaiah 52 verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Remember, this word servant means slave. My slave is going to be exalted and be very high. Isaiah 53, 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Man, we are seeing the the character of Jesus described continuously as being a servant, a servant, okay? Let's look in the New Testament in Philippians chapter two, and you're going to want to highlight this one and And maybe even keep your finger here because we'll come here at the very end of the sermon. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So there we see the first time bondservant is used. And we're going to find out today what a bondservant is, and you guys probably already know. But isn't calling Jesus a servant or a slave a bad thing? I mean, isn't it disrespectful? He's God, and and we believe Jesus is God, right? His glory knows no bounds. How can it be true 
that he makes himself a servant. And he's happy with that. That God the Father asks his son to behave in the way of a servant. Jesus was the most exalted God in in all of heaven. The angels hid their faces from him because he was so glorious. Yet now he chooses to be completely dependent, perfectly humble, and made lower than the angels. That's crazy. But just because Jesus became a servant doesn't mean that he was less honorable or valuable. You see, calling him a servant doesn't change his glory. It helps us to understand his glory. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he is serving us by helping us to understand the character and nature of God in a language that we could understand. He's like a divine translator. We can't understand God because he's so holy. So Jesus comes and makes him palatable for us. We look down on servants naturally. You know, if Dana came up here and she just started vacuuming up here during the middle of the sermon, you know, you guys would be like, oh, Dana. (laughs) This is not the time for that. (laughs) We generally look down on servants, and that's our pride and our arrogance, of course. But Jesus turns that whole world upside down and we see that he's going to teach us that being a servant, being the lowest servant, is the most exalted in God's mindset, in God's economy, in God's kingdom. Being a servant is the greatest. Uh, The entire book of Mark is written and designed to show Jesus' serving. The entire book of Mark shows Jesus as a great servant, what kind of servant he was. So what does it mean to be a servant like Jesus? Again, we're going to look at a few verses just to fill our minds with the scriptures, okay? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 says, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus was God. So couldn't he do whatever he wanted? Absolutely not. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. Now, of course, they're united and their will is the same thing. But as a human, he submitted himself to the Father's will in everything, even when it contradicted what he wanted to do. He did, I have come to do your will, O God. That's what a servant is. A Hebrew slave was expected to do what their master told them to do. Take out the trash. Sweep the floor. Go jump off that cliff. You do what I say. That was unquestioned obedience was expected. Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Then he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus is like 12 years old at this time. First thing we ever have recorded him saying is... Of course I'm going to be doing what my father wants me to do. I have to be about my father's business. That's all that I care about is doing what my father has instructed me to do. John 6:38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Are you getting the idea of what a servant is supposed to do? Not his will, but what his master wants to do. What do you want out of your life? What's your goals and aspirations? I don't care. I'm a servant. I do his will. Romans 15.3 For even Christ did not please himself, but his Father. He did not live to please himself. A servant doesn't care about their bank accounts or their life They are there to serve their master. Okay, Luke 22, 27. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Jesus asked this question. The answer is obvious. He who sits at the table is greater. Is it not he who sits at the table? The master is the greatest. Yet I am among you as one who serves, Jesus says. I am the servant. We're reading about a law concerning Hebrew servants. And who was Jesus Hebrew? And was Jesus the greatest? He's the greatest Hebrew. Was he a servant? He's the greatest servant. 
So we're already going down this road that is going to knock your socks off. What it says about this. Just watch. This is amazing. Jesus chose this life of being a servant. Do you get that? Who does that? Adam didn't do that. Remember Adam and Eve? God said, would you serve me? I've created you. You have one role in life to serve me. Tend the garden. Be my servant. You're created for this. And Adam wanted instead to be like God. Right? Where Jesus was God and he chose to come and be a servant. The second Adam, the greater Adam, right? The anti-type. So cool. Jesus never chose his own path. He chose to be a servant. He only chose the Father's way. Even when he was hungry and the tempter reminded him that he could make stones turn into bread, Jesus chose to serve, to surrender, to submit, and to depend on the will of the Father. Do you think you get to choose something different if you're going to be a servant of God? Hmm. That's the standard. That's what Jesus did. That's what a servant does. But we fail. Every son of, that Adam has ever produced has chosen to rebel. And that's all of us in this room. Yet that's what is demanded of us. God has called us to come out and serve him, like he called the children of Israel, to come out of Egypt to serve him at Mount Sinai. He wants people to He owns us. He is the master. So look at verse 2 back in Exodus again, because this is going to start to peel back uh, just scales on our eyes of the wonderful love of Christ. Guys, this is going to touch your hearts, I guarantee it. Verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. Okay, so... You guys understand what that means in the very practical, governmental way. You can only have a, a slave six years and then you have to let him go free, no matter what. Okay? But what does this mean on the spiritual level? Well, spiritually, six is the number of, anyone know? Man. Very good, Perry. Ten Jesus points. Six is the number of man in the Bible. And so the fact that this, a Hebrew servant, owed the master six years, speaks of a servant owing God. It's what man owes God. They owe him a lifetime of service, basically. This is spelled out in the law. What we just read in the Ten Commandments, he said, love God and love others. That's how we serve God. Love God and love others. The law tells us exactly what to do, but it doesn't tell us how to do it. We try to do that, and we are going to fail every time. But this Hebrew servant, the, the design of it is that he should serve six years, which is exactly what we were created for. We were created to serve God because we are man. That's our role. Many people don't know why they exist. What's my purpose in life? But you guys do. What's your purpose? To serve God. How? We're doing what? Loving God and loving others. That's what it means to serve God. Loving God and loving others. But we fail. But if a man were to serve for these six years, what does it say would happen? If a Hebrew servant served for these six years perfectly, to serve for these six years, what would happen? He would go out free and he would owe nothing so what does this mean if a man were to serve god perfectly love god perfectly and love others perfectly that's what he owes god that's what we all owe god that's what serving god looks like well jesus was the perfect man and the perfect servant and he perfectly served god all the days of his life he perfectly loved god with all his heart didn't he he perfectly 
And, and that's what man owed. And since Jesus became a man, he must serve the way that man was designed to serve. You must love God with all your heart. So Jesus says, I do that. Then he had to love his brothers and sisters as himself, all his neighbors as himself. And Jesus fulfilled that as well, which is what man owed God. Jesus fully fulfilled what man owed God. He lived the perfect man life. He even had a beard. He was the perfect man, right? Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to... Louder? Fulfill. I did not come to destroy them. I came to accomplish what man was supposed to do. What were we supposed to do with the law and the prophets? Fulfill them. But we didn't. But Jesus did. So it says, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free and pay nothing. So after this perfect service, the servant was free and the master had no more requirements of him. No more requirements. In other words, you, if you lived a perfect life, you would have the right to go right up on him to heaven and join with God for the party. Just relax. You're done with your labor. Many pastors believe Jesus reached this point of fulfilling man's um, res- responsibilities, we'll call it, the requirement on man. Many pastors believe that he fulfilled this when he went up on the mountain He had lived his life. It was very much towards the end. And he went up on the mountain and he was transfigured before Peter and James and John. Do you guys remember that? And he became transfigured before them. He started to glow with glory, right? And the father opened up heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. I'm well pleased in him. Uh, This is so awesome. Okay, now check this out. When he went up on that mountain, he was glorified. God spoke and said, I'm fully pleased with you. You have satisfied every demand that God has placed upon man. You did it, Jesus. And what could Jesus have done if he wanted to at that moment? He could have just gone right up into heaven. He had finished his service He had loved God with all his heart. He had loved his fellow man with all his heart. And he was maybe even beginning to because he started to be glorified. He he had that glory. But he didn't. He could have walked right up to the throne and taken his seat at the throne, but he didn't. He didn't. Why? Why? What could convince Jesus to stay and do something more. I bet he'll tell us. Let's go back to Exodus. Verse 3. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. So yes, Jesus could have gone straight up into heaven, but he would continue to be alone. Alone. No, that's not Jesus' plan. Jesus has a different plan. He doesn't want to be alone. He wants a bride. Look what verse 4 says. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. Well, Jesus doesn't have a bride yet. But he knew this everlasting principle that if he just goes out, he'll continue to be alone. And he even spoke this principle to us in John chapter 12, verse 24. And this will blow your ever-loving mind. This is amazing. Look at this principle that Jesus teaches us. He says in John 12, 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much 
grain. What do you think he's talking about? Farming? No. He's talking about that he could go up and be alone, but he would rather die and multiply. Now, I wonder if there's an Old Testament example of this that would foreshadow Jesus again. Actually, yes, of course, I'm going to tell you. That was a terrible segue. But Adam, do you guys remember Adam? The very first thing Jesus ever did or God ever made, you know, God told Adam, name these animals, you know, and none, none of those animals were found that he could love. None of them were on his level. Have you guys ever met an animal that was just on your level? No? Okay. All right. Because they're not. Where? There was nothing that he could love. But I, I want to ask you a question. Where was Eve? Where was Eve when Adam was naming the animals? Right? She was in Adam, but she wasn't formed yet. Yeah. She, she was in there. She, it was her rib, right? His rib. This is crazy. So, you know, where, where is a rib? It's close to your heart, right? But have any of you ever had a love affair with your rib? No. <laughs> that would be weird. You can't. You can't love yourself in the way that you can love another. That's how love happens. It's when you express and receive love. And so... Adam wanted this love. He saw Mr. and Mrs. Orangutan, and they're loving each other, and Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, and they're loving each other. And God is like, how you doing, Adam? And he's like, this sucks. I'm alone, and you've created me to love, and I can't love any of these monkeys. These guys are all dogs and cats, and I can't, honestly, they're great, great job, but it's, they're not good enough. This is not okay. I'm not going to marry any of these guys. And God's like, yeah, that's exactly why I'm doing this. But I need to talk to you, Adam. And I need to teach you an everlasting principle. In order for there to be two or more, you got to die. You got to be laid down. Are you willing to go to sleep for me to do this? And you're going to have to be wounded, Adam. Are you cool with that? And I was like, bring it on, right? So God lays Adam down, which speaks of what? Death. Takes the woman, forms the woman out of a wound in his side. And Adam raises up and God brings them together. And now Eve was never created. She was only formed out of Adam. Okay? She is now able to love Adam and be loved by Adam. And they have this relationship and they multiply. Isn't this crazy? A bride came forth out of Adam's side. Just like the bride will follow the death of Jesus from a wound in his side. Right? He was pierced in his side and his hands and feet. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Why do you think that the first time Jesus called his disciples brethren was the day he rose from the dead? He never called, he called them his disciples, his followers. But the day he called them brethren was the first day he rose from the dead. Something changed. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. His Spirit was placed inside them. And they were a new creation. They were now able to be His bride when they were just people before. And now they're His bride. And this new creation is just amazing. Now look at what verse 5 back in Exodus says. But if the servant plainly says, who's the servant? Jesus, he's plainly says, if this servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, in that order, 
I will not go out free. Then the master shall bring him to the judges and he shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. So practically, if they wanted to be a bondservant, they would take him to the door and they would pierce his ear. From then on, everyone who saw that servant would, would know that he serves his master for life forever because he loves his master. It was not servant to him, it was just family. Okay. The servant, it says, and remember, it speaks of Jesus, he plainly says, he couldn't be more clear, I love. And that is why I'm going to pass up my opportunity to go right on and go freely up into heaven, and instead I'm going to endure, endure pain, the piercing, and I am going to serve forever because I love. The servant has just earned his freedom. His six years are done, but because of love, he chooses to reject freedom. Now, connect this with the transfiguration with Jesus. We know that the transfiguration happened right before John 12, 23, which means Jesus has just earned that freedom, we could say. He just was on the mountain. And what is the first thing he says? He could have left, but what is the first thing Jesus says in John 12, 23? He says, Jesus answered and said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 24, I, but most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. That's the first thing he said when he was done with the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, you, want to, you guys want to know why I didn't go be glorified? Because I want to die. Because I want a bride. Because I love you guys. This is the most romantic story in history. So wonderful. Now look a couple verses later in John 12, 27. Jesus says, my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What do these verses mean? Why would Jesus be so willing to lay down his life so freely, not even wanting to be saved from pain and suffering, from the piercing because of love? He loved, number one, his master. He cared for his master's kingdom and his master's reputation more than his own. He loved his master. So the servant plainly says, I love my master. Why again? Because God, why does he say again, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. The first glorifying that Jesus did of God's name was when Jesus lived a perfect life. That glorified God. Thank you, Jesus, for being a perfect man. Well done. Golf clap. Ten Jesus points. Or let me a million, probably, for him. He, he, God was glorified by Jesus' life, and now he's going to be glorified by Jesus' next step. That's the second step that Jesus is going to take. This, this hour of suffering, though, the crucifixion, it was not required by the law. The law never required it, uh, but it's a service now that God asked him for pain and suffering. That's what the ear being pierced represents, is the pain and suffering Jesus went through, the piercing of the Lamb of God. That's what it represents. Look back at our text nexus. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the door post. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. So not only was there pain and suffering and sacrifice in this, in the piercing, but it says here he shall serve him forever. There is eternal service. Jesus promises to serve his Father and us forever. The wife and the children that the servant loves is obviously 
us. We are the wife and children. And the church that was formed from the wound in his side is this wife and children. It says that he took him to the door, okay? And he drove a spike or an awl into his ear. This shows that he is now part of the family. That's what it represents. A bondservant was seen as a member of the family. But in our type, it shows that Jesus is now making a way for us to be a part of God's family. He has already said that he is the door, right? Just like the Passover lamb was killed and his blood was, was painted on the door, right? And it protected the whole family. That's what it represents. Having the ear pierced symbolizes that you were completely surrendered to your master's will for your whole life, just as the crucifixion, the piercing of the lamb, shows the total surrender of Jesus to the will of the Father. Total surrender. Now we got to go to Psalm chapter 40, verse 6. And it specifically references this portion of, of the bondservant with the ear piercing, and it connects it to Jesus for us, just in case you thought I was a weirdo. Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice an offering you did not desire. Who sacrifices and offerings? Ours. The people's. God does not desire them. They're annoying. Your efforts to be right in God's sight do not work. They don't please him. But what does he say? My ears you have opened. And the word opened is Hebrew pierced. Pierced. Burnt offering and sin offerings you did not require. He said, guys, you missed the whole point. But in this psalm, he prophesies, God doesn't like all your sacrifices and offerings. He, he likes the ears of his servant pierced, total surrender, the sacrifice of the lamb, that's what gets God pumped up. Yes, God says, that's what pleases me. Oh, if we only knew how much it glorifies and pleases God when he sees the blood of his son. We don't even get it. We do not know. But if we could only understand the pleasure that Jesus has brought to the heart of his master. When, when the master would bring the Hebrew servant and, and do, he wasn't like, oh, here we go, free slave for life. Ugh. He was like, oh my gosh, you love me? You'll serve me forever and be a part of the family? It was a wondrous thing. Now imagine that times infinity, the way Jesus said, I love you, Father. I love you, Master, and I will serve you. He has brought the heart of the Father more joy than you could ever imagine. If we could only know and understand how God respects the blood sacrifice Jesus presented to him. Here, Father, pierce me. If we could only understand how that motivates God's compassion, we would clothe ourselves with that blood and we would run in day after day into God's presence and say, here I am clothed in his blood. Knowing that the response of the father when he sees his son's blood is, oh, yes. Oh, you, your love Jesus, your obedience, your sacrifice, it compels my compassion to overflow to whoever would be clothed in this blood. Whoever would believe in Jesus, I will give him all my compassion. All my grace is promised to the person who will come by faith alone. Oh, but I don't, I don't really feel like it works for me. And the father says, how dare you minimize the blood of the sacrifice of the lamb so you think it's such a trivial thing 
that he would allow himself to be brought to the doorpost and pierced through. You don't understand what Jesus did for you. You don't understand what I have done. You don't understand what Jesus did for you. You don't believe it. You don't believe in the depth and the meaning, and you don't understand the compassion God has for you when you come clothed in that blood. We don't get it. But oh, I wish we could. I wish we would. Only through a lifetime of clothing ourselves with that blood and entering into his presence and saying, Father, teach me. Show me what the cross means. Show me by the Holy Spirit. Teach me. Humbling ourselves. Not thinking we know it. I'm fine. I know the doctrine. I know everything. I'm good with my relationship with Jesus. When the Father recalls the sacrifice and obedience and love of His Son, He transfers all of that acceptance to you. How wretched are we that we don't even believe it? That we think we have to earn God's love and acceptance? How could you add to what Jesus did? We can't. In Ephesians 3, Paul is overcome with these emotions about this love of Christ. He is overcome with the sacrifice and the blood of the bondservant. And he prays in Ephesians 3.18 that you might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ with patches with which passes understanding that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh Lord, show us today. Show me what your blood has bought me, O perfect servant. Open the eyes of my heart to your unknowable love. Expand it through dimensions that I can't even understand. Fill it to overflowing with your love. Another detail about this servant is that he's left with a hole in his body forever. Just like Jesus shows his hands and his feet to Thomas after the crucifixion and says, you can touch him. Look, they're there. And in the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus as a lamb that had been slain. He keeps these wounds, these holes, these piercings forever. Another detail, it says, his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. Jesus will serve his master and us forever. So turn to John 13. John chapter 13. I know this is a long study, but it's still going to blow your mind. We're almost there. God is working. Stay strong. Stay focused. Now before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then it says, dinner or supper being ended. The last supper, this is the last supper. Remember the painting where Jesus is like this and eating and they're all next to him. Okay, the last supper speaks of his death. You have the body being broken. You have the blood being given. The Last Supper represents, even today, when we're going to take communion, it represents the crucifixion, right? So then what does Jesus do in verse 4? Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. He rose. What did Jesus do after his sacrifice? He rose. Imagine that. How amazing is this? And then he laid aside his Garments. Okay, the resurrection. His glorified body, laying aside the earthly garments, becoming glorified, no longer bound by human weakness. And it says, though, he's glorified in a glorified body. And it says, he took a towel and served. He washes his disciples' feet. And that is Jesus's job even to this day he is serving us 
to this day. He serves us. He does all that we need. He provides all that we need. He does a cleansing work in us. He does when we need love, he gives us love. When we need forgiveness, he gives us forgiveness. When we need peace, he sends us peace. When we need wisdom, he grants us wisdom. He does all for us because he ever lives to make intercession for us. He ever lives to serve you, and he's going to do that forever. Because he is the chief servant. He's the chief of the brethren. He is Jesus the Messiah. Forever. Well, what about when we go to heaven? Does he finally get a break then? In Luke chapter 20, 12, verse 37, it said, Blessed are those servants who the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he, Jesus, will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. Well, what will we need in heaven? What do you need in heaven? Nothing. But that won't stop him from serving and pleasing his father and serving and bringing us joy as well. Jesus will ever be just planning our love and and fulfilling our, our joy. That is his, I can't even handle this anymore. That is his entire passion is to serve you love. To bless you. And he's not going to stop in eternity. He's going to just find new levels and layers and extents of how he can serve you love upon love upon love. Let your weary heart drink deep from these waters. The love of Jesus will cure what ails you today and for eternity. I will wipe every tear from their eyes. Right? So, let's pray that the Spirit teaches us what this means. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father.